Greetings, Islanders and listeners of the world. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, your weekly opportunity to listen in as my guest authors go deeper into the backstory of their literary work with a specific focus on how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader or listener at a time. If you have to leave the show early, this and previous shows are always available on demand at www.voiceofvashon.org. And now, let me welcome this show's guest author, Lawrence Matsuda. Welcome to the studio. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful day. Isn't it? It's wonderful. Okie doke. So I want to thank you especially for taking the time to meet with me at such late notice. For my listeners, you will know that I met Larry because there was a poster up about the Mukai Foundation having Larry and Lonnie Kaneko come to the Land Trust and do a poetry reading. And anyways, when I saw really sort of how you were expressing in that poster goals for increasing awareness and really getting the word out to people about what actually happened. Oh gosh, seven, wait, how many years ago? Closer to 70 years ago, 1942. Right, right, right. I really appreciate the effort you've put into raising awareness around this issue. So what we're talking about specifically, why don't you go ahead and tell us the um, unfortunate anniversary in a way that we just passed. Right. In in 1942, approximately 120,000 Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans were incarcerated uh, because of the race. Right. And they were put into, you, you call them whatever you want to call them, but they were concentration camps. They had barbed wire around them, machine guns and guards. And uh, we were considered a threat to national security. Mm-hmm. Approximately two-thirds of us were citizens, and approximately a half of us were children. Wow. And uh, we represented a national threat, supposedly, to the security of the United States of America. Right. So the Japanese internment camps, as they are sometimes called, um, for those of us living here on Vashon Island, of course, this is an issue somewhat near and dear to our hearts because so many of the farms on the island were owned and managed and run by Japanese families. And I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, after the three years of internment, none of them made it back for full farm ownership. Is that true? I do not know whether that is true. What what I did say was what was on the sign at the public market the Pike right. Place Market, right. uh, before the war, two-thirds of the vendors, farmers, were Japanese. After the war, zero. Right. And this is because there really were no, I mean, the government didn't say, oh, we think you're a threat, so we're going to do this, and therefore we're going to freeze all of your mortgage payments, and, you know, we're going to hold everything that you own you know, and protect it for you so after the war you can come back and it's all sitting here. I mean, I don't think anything like that was done. No, it wasn't done. Uh, In fact, in many cases, bank accounts were frozen, especially if you had an account in a Japanese bank, Sumitomo Bank. It would be frozen because it's a foreign bank. They did, however, 
provide uh, the detainees $25 in a train or bus ticket after two or three years of incarceration when they were released. And later on in 1988, there were reparations uh, right. and an apology from three presidents, actually. And that was, was it Bush, Bush, and Clinton? No, it was uh, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. Because okay. it, it, the uh, apology program spanned those terms. It was at the end of Reagan, into Bush, and into Clinton. Right. And they said, essentially in their letters of apology, the reason for it was race discrimination, wartime hysteria, and failed leadership. I mean, that's what the three presidents said. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what then... Can't, I mean, given that you can't go back in time and change things, I think the best way you can honor the suffering and the wrongs that are done in the past, the way we honor them best is to pay attention, not forget, and apply the lessons learned to ourselves today. Yes, I, I would say that is true. That's what, what my opinion is. Uh, Mark Twain said, history does not repeat itself. But it rhymes. And so we as Japanese Americans are probably not going to be sent back to the camps. But it could be some other group for some other reason, which would be very, very similar. And I think, and other people will, from my community, will disagree. But I think because we were the first to be incarcerated, we should be the first to stand up if it happens to some other group. And that's our legacy, and that's why I write what I write, mm-hmm. speak about what I speak about. Because by informing others about what happened to us, they then are not ignorant. They then cannot plead ignorance, and they then share in a piece of the legacy. Mm, no, I like that a lot. Yes, right. Well, let's dive in then. Let us know a little bit about... What drew you to poetry initially and why it's the form that you've focused on? Okay. Well, just to give you a a brief background, uh, there is uh, Kubler-Ross and her notions of accepting death. Mm -hmm. And it's like anger, denial, negotiations, which is sometimes called bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. This is an experience that's very similar to that, except that I have never gotten to acceptance. Mm-hmm. So I'm in anger, denial, depression, bargaining, those places. And through that process, because I've never gotten to acceptance, mm-hmm. I tried to do something positive, which is to write about the experience, to share the information so that it doesn't happen again. In my first book of poetry, A Cold Wind from Idaho, I really... Uh, tried to capture the emotions of it rather than just the facts. I think there's there's a fair number of books these days that speak to the facts of it. Mm-hmm. Very few of them go into the gut-wrenching emotions of being betrayed by your country and sent forcibly off to become, as they called, a colonist in a model community in the desert, which was... You know, big Mm. propaganda piece. Mm -hmm. And so A Cold Wind from Idaho is is all words. You know, it's a book of poetry. 
And then as I moved forward, uh, I met Roger Shimamura, who's an internationally known artist. He has works in the Smithsonian. And what we decided to do was to collaborate. So my second book, Glimpses of a Forever Foreigner, has 18 of his original uh, art pieces done specifically for the book and three uh, old older pieces done previously. So A Cold Wind from Idaho, this is the one that if people want to see more of this, they can go to blacklawrence.com and um, it's, it is simple and impactful. And then Glimpses of a Forever Foreigner, Poetry and Artwork Inspired by Japanese American Experiences. This one is... Elliott Bay Books has it. Oh, right. Uh, you know, Elliott Bay Book Company, that is awesome. I Going there is a splendid experience, and this cover totally reminds me of their store. So, yes, anyone who is up in the Capitol Hill area, you can glance through this. It This one has images. Yes, and right. it becomes almost a different kind of piece. And then my most recent is a standalone graphic novel about a Nisei veteran war hero. So I've gone from words only to words and pictures, and now I'm at pictures and words, and someone mm-hmm. asked me, are you going to go to pictures next? Well, I have no artistic skills, <laughs> so I, I'm going to have to draw the line. But this Shiro standalone is chapter one in a larger piece, which will be released September 12th. And the name of the larger piece is Fighting for America, Nisei Soldiers, and it has Shiro in it mm-hmm. as a chapter one, and there are five other chapters. One of the chapters deals with uh, a gentleman named Jimmy Kanaya, who was a colonel when he finally left the army. He was captured by the Germans, and so he, his mm. experience was in a German uh, prisoner of war right. camp. Right, P.O.W. That's where my yeah. granddad spent on the entire World War Two. He was shot down in his first mission. Managed, I believe, be the only survivor from his bomber mm-hmm. and spent the rest of the two or whatever years of the war in a POW camp. Right. And it's The stories are amazing. So that's Jimmy. So they're not all just about, you know, war and fighting. And then uh, another one is uh, about uh, this one guy named Roy Matsumoto. And he was in the MIS, Military Intelligence Service, in Mm. the Pacific. He was a translator. Right, right. And he was born in America, went to Japan, and then he was sent back to America with his one brother. When the war broke out, he joined the American Army. His three brothers were in the Japanese Army. His family was in Hiroshima. As, oh. as this is where we came from, to both sides of my family were from Hiroshima. And it was only later when Roy was interrogating captured Japanese army soldiers in China that he interrogated his cousin and hmm. found out that his parents were well because they left Hiroshima and that uh, all three brothers were alive. And, of course, Roy's fear was that he would one day come face-to-face with his brothers on the battlefield. Right, of course. So those are some of the other stories in there, and they're, they're, they're quite good and quite unique. That, the way, his fear of meeting his brothers 
reminds me of um, the Vietnam War, reminds me of Eastern and Western Germany. I mean, there's so many situations where war succeeds at splitting families into, you know, opposing loyalties. And you were also talking with me earlier today about the actual processing, let's just use that word, the processing of Japanese Americans and then Issei, who are Japanese nationals who have come to America, the process that the government put them through in order to further split, segment, and separate them along the way. And, of course, I knew nothing about this. It's quite detailed Mm -hmm. information. Why don't you go ahead and real quick explain a little bit about that. Let's make sure people really have a sense of what happened. Okay. I'm not a historian, so historians will say that I missed this nuance or didn't quite pick up on on this minor issue. But generally, uh, the issue of loyalty among the Japanese in the internment camps was important because there was talk about forming an all-Japanese segregated army unit to fight in Europe, which, which they actually did. But the precursor to that was a loyalty questionnaire given to everyone who was 17 years or older, which essentially asked, there were questions 27 and 28, which essentially asked, uh, you know, would you forswear any allegiance to the emperor of Japan, and will you also fight for America? And the, the people who said no, no on both of these questions were segregated and sent to a different camp. And ultimately, those who did not serve, some of them were called resistors or no-no boys, were sent to federal penitentiaries. The no-no boys. Yeah, and they they were sent from a jail to a jail. Only Mm -hmm. the second jail was big-time federal penitentiary. And my neighbor was a no-no boy, and he was at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary right Mm -hmm. over there. Mm -hmm. And... uh, He was there through the war, the remainder of the war. So if you were sent to the penitentiary and you had not actually committed any crimes and you had simply answered no, no on those two questions, then did you end up having a record when you came out? Like a felon has a record? Okay. As I said, the historians will tell me I didn't get it all, but it it took more than just saying no, no. You Mm -hmm. had to resist the draft, too. Also, but will you have a record? I'm sure you would have a record, but President Truman gave them a, a pardon. Right. So right. I, I do not know what that mm. means, that right. you were in prison, then you're given a pardon. So I guess you're okay years later. But there was this one unfortunate case that I know of, Jimmy Midikitani, who has a video. He's, he's now passed away, and it's called Cats of Midikitani. He was a, what they called a renunciant, and mm. it's wonderful how they give everybody a name. Right. He was a renunciant. He renounced his American citizenship while in camp, so he effectively became a man without a country in the United States. He was not a Japanese citizen, mm. and he was not an American citizen, mm-hmm. and he became homeless for many, many years and kind of lived off the grid until he was found by this artist, well, Roger Shimamura, 
found him, as did uh, a woman named Hattendorf who made a film about him. Hmm. And uh, Jimmy did not get his letter of pardon hmm. because he was homeless and didn't have an address. He was countryless also, it yeah. sounds like. And so years later, she found the uh, pardon letter, and he was able to get Social Security and get into an old folks home and get off the street. And this was mm. after 9-11. He was in New York, and he used to sell art uh, several blocks away from the Twin Towers. Mm. He was living right there. Oh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it is, as you said, you, you mentioned how they give names to everybody. And um, I've spent a very long time actually really sort of focused on the danger of labels. You know, it's just so easy when you label someone that other people stop asking questions. They now think they know who you are, what you are, what you stand for. Like they know everything just because you have an anti this, a pro that um, label or whatever. And yeah, it's a form of divide and conquer. Yeah. And it's a way for, you know, the Japanese to put an arm's distance away from these people. You know, the, they were disloyal. We were not. Mm. And, you know, it's a way to segregate the segregated. Right. So so after they have the questionnaire and they made that, and I think you were mentioning, for example, um, word got out, people understood the purpose of the questionnaires, and then there were family discussions of, you know, if the father says, I'm going to answer this way, and that means they're going to send me to a different camp, then what does the wife and the children do? Do they answer the same and hope to go with him to keep the family together? Do they answer different? So it sounds like there was that form of, of com- you know, community-crushing separation. Yes, it was. And, and it, it was something that divided the camps. And also, because of the success of the 442, uh, for example, they saved the Texas Lost Battalion. Right. 212 Texans who were pinned down, isolated, surrounded by Germans, and the 442 was asked to go in and save them. And they took casualties like in the 800s to save right. 200 people. Because of the success of the 442, then a draft was implemented at the camps. You mentioned the draft earlier, yeah. and I sort of went, oh, I didn't know about that. I thought everyone was a volunteer. I thought it was a full volunteer army in World War II. So I think there was a draft. We need to find this out. Yeah, right. There's some movies where these people desperately want to go to the war, and they're turned away because of a physical issue or Mm. they're too young or whatever. And that always gave me the impression that World War II basically thrived on the backs of willing soldiers. Well, that could be checked easily. I know. I'm going to start checking. Yeah, I, I think... There was a draft. Um, hmm. Well, I'm going to check that right now. Okay, please um, do. You go ahead and grab one of your favorite poems or two and go ahead and let's pick one from each book. How does that sound? Or whichever two draw you. Okay. Maybe specifically from the first book, just to give people a sense. I mean, it, like you said, there are a lot of books that go in through the head. They cover issues in a nonfiction way so that we can say we know. But it's when you step into the world of historical fiction or poetry and you start to walk in the boots of a person and you start to feel what they feel, 
that's where I believe concrete change happens when we actually can really empathize. And then you can't ever turn your back on someone that you've cared for. You know, so so those are powerful poems. Well, this one is entitled Gorillas, and it's, it relates to Camp Harmony, which is what they called the Puyallup Fair Temporary Incarceration Center. Mm. And it had barbed wire, machine guns, and, and, and all, and that horrible name of Camp Harmony. Oh. And uh, so it's called Gorillas. Mom wore layers. Her best clothes hid the baby bump, sat on her suitcase, strapped down the bulge, only way to bring all she could carry. No time to decorate the baby's room, buy a crib, or attend a shower. Already sold the Baldwin piano she loved to play in the evenings. Silverware set and never-to-be-used wedding gifts. No idea where the soldiers were taking them. Machine guns and guard towers surrounded the Puyallup Fairgrounds, renamed Camp Harmony. Lanky blue-eyed private from Arkansas, rifle over his right shoulder and bayonets fixed to his belt, towered over a sea of black heads, singled out Mom. She said he asked, You all human beings? You look and dress like humans. At the fairgrounds in the decaying straw, some unlucky Japanese bachelors lived in animal stalls. Barbed wire held the masses. Food psychologically tethered them like Pavlov's dog. Camp Harmony, a target-rich environment. Japanese orphans, babies, women, children, the infirm and able-bodied. They must have felt their neck hairs tingle when the machine gun swiveled. And the crosshairs hesitated. You know, people have a tendency to look at World War II and turn their nose down on the Germans of that time and say, I wouldn't have let that happen or I wouldn't have done that or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm always like, well, you know, stress. Humans seem to be capable of some really incredible things if you apply the proper amount of stress to them. And you hear that and you see what's going on. It's like... I don't know. I mean, what were the factors that allowed people to be comfortable with that? We need to figure out what allows comfort with wrongness so we can interfere with those things. Yeah, it's like fear. And and oftentimes you hear fatigue makes cowards out of the bravest soldiers. And so (sighs) what, what happens is you get to a point where you can't fight it. Fatigue, fear. Right. You just go along. Right. And this is from your second. Yes, this is from um, my second book, book, uh, Glimpses of a Forever Foreigner. Right. And this one is called They Turn Their Eyes Away. And it's more about, well, it's it's about the Minidoka Detention Center, Relocation Center, or Concentration Camp. And I was born there. I don't think I mentioned that. Uh, not yet. Not yeah, in the interview. I was born no. There. And just just a, going sideways for a second. Mm-hmm. Everyone who was there got a number because right. you number people. And uh, our number was one one four six four, and my father was one one four six four A. My mother was B. My brother was C, and I was D. Right. So I can reference that in case I want to find information on 11464D. 
And this one is called They Turn Their Eyes Away. Minidoka barbed wire snags hope like tumbleweed. One thousand miles away at Tule Lake, California, Shoichi Okamoto twists and falls, a bullet in his head, cost a disbelieving a guard. The soldier walks free, find a dollar for unauthorized use of government property. Wind blows alkaline dust through the tar paper barrack. Bachan, grandmother, prays for freedom, strikes her singing bowl. Minidoka crumbles in her dreams when black rain splatters Hiroshima and sunlight sparkles silver through thin barrack doors. Freedom will not be open arms and welcome banners, red rose petal showers reserved for real Americans. We are the vanquished foe walking through the victor's lair, gauntlet of a thousand eyes. Anxious to pass unnoticed in our yellow skin, we will turn away from Remember Pearl Harbor, remarks. Mushroom clouds inhabit the irises of our eyes. I don't even know what I would... That, such a... Um, not easy to describe situation that was lived through for Japanese Americans during World War II. Mm-hmm. Just can't even necessarily put it into words. I mean, you can, and yet, at the same time. Wow. Well, as, as I said, uh, referencing Kubler-Ross... Some of us were in depression. Some committed suicide. Some in mm-hmm. the camp. Some after. Some accepted it. Some were in denial. Mm-hmm. And those are just coping me- mechanisms. Right. Right, right, right. So, uh, yes, in World War II there was a draft. Yes. That's so many right. people were drafted. Um, so not just uh, one group. And... Um, so the draft came through, which meant that now they didn't have a choice. Well, you had a choice. You could you could either be a draft dodger. Well, you can be a draft like in Vietnam. If you're a draft dodger, you went to jail. went to another country. Well, you couldn't go to another country. Right, but if you just refuse, if you're a draft refuser, like you just say, "I'm not going to go," what happens then? You went to the federal penitentiary. Okay. Okay. So um, let's let's back up then just a little bit. Um, during World War II, there was also um, special groups set up of only black soldiers as well, right? Yes. So World War II really was right there at the cusp of highly accepted, honored, respected, and valued racism in America. It was just... Just such the norm, you know, white soldiers didn't want to be working with black soldiers or, I mean, it's, I mean, it was just blatantly accepted, okay, and not really questioned, it sounds like. Uh, I mean, civil rights movement hadn't even come into the imagination of people, much less become their history. Right. There were segregated units, yes. And I think there was a Mexican segregated unit as well. Like, and the, um, well, the Cherokee, the Native Americans, was that Vietnam? Or I think that was Vietnam where they were breaking all the codes. Yeah, I cannot remember which war that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that, well, we were at the height, really, of very much, 
would say accepted racism. And I think for people today who have the blinders up and don't want to recognize the existing racism in our country, um, and for those of us lucky enough to live in, in far less racist regions, it's hard to imagine that, that's, that that was okay. I mean, it's really hard for me, especially. Well, in, in the graphic novel, the one that's coming out, where it has the six chapters, uh, a couple of the uh, soldiers were training at Camp Shelby, Mississippi, and they went to uh, Hattiesburg for, uh, you know, uh, on leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were shocked to see segregated oh, fountains, right. uh, uh, lunch counters. I mean, segregation was a part of the American society in in the South. It was, it was. But it was blacks and whites. What yeah. happened when a Japanese person showed up? Well, yeah, that's that's was a question, and they were they were permitted to use white facilities. Hmm. Uh, I don't think they were white, considered white, but they were considered non-colored mm-hmm. for the using the facilities, so they could go to the white sections of the restaurants, white sections of the buses, use the white bathrooms, use the mm-hmm. white drinking fountains. And the, the, some of the soldiers in, in the uh, graphic novel, who I did interview, they, they commented, you know, well, now I know what it's like to be a white person. <sighs> but mm-hmm. the irony there is that they were in a segregated unit. Right. Then they were in a segregated South. Right. And then they became white in a segregated South, which gives you a headache. Uh, <laughs> imagine so. My um, sister-in-law, so my husband is, um, well, he's Mexican-American, uh, born in Mexico. So I guess it makes him technically like a naturalized citizen. I'm not yeah. sure. Came to the country when he was about a year old. His father was born in Texas, so his father's an actual American citizen, and then went back to Mexico, got married, and eventually brought the family over. And so they all, um, when they were younger, and even through high school, like summers were definitely, you were picking in the fields basically Mm -hmm. all summer long, and a lot of them get up. It's just like the movie that um, came out a while ago with Kevin Costner in it. You know, mom would get up at 2 in the morning to start making food. Mm-hmm. 4 a.m., the kids would get woken up, and they'd go off to the fields with Dad. And then Mom would show up around 8 with breakfast, which she'd been cooking since 2. And it took six hours to make all the beans and the, you know, if, um, gosh, everything, the tortillas, the if they were lucky, they have chorizo, you know, the eggs and all this stuff. And she would show up, you know, and everyone would eat, you know, and then they would work until about noon. And then it got too hot. Mm-hmm. And then the kids were done. Dad would go to the cemetery and dig graves through the heat of the day, and then he'd go back, usually work a little bit more in the evening. So, like, all of that is a part of my family history now, and my sisters and brother-in-laws all tell me stories and stuff. And one of my sisters, she was in, she's older than my husband, and she um, was in, would go in the field, and what she relayed to me was how they were the white owners of the farm, and they had a bathroom like a real bathroom, an outhouse. It was just an outhouse. And the outhouse, there were Japanese migrant workers, and then there were also Hispanic migrant Mm -hmm. workers. And the Japanese children 
were allowed to use the outhouse, but the Mexican children were chased away and told to go to the bathroom somewhere in some bushes or somewhere, and they weren't allowed to go. So even in so you had white, Japanese, Hispanic, and it was, and she she's like, I didn't understand why. You know, I had no clue why. Mm-hmm. You know, and this was in the this would have been in the sixties mm. in California, Gilroy region. Okay. So we're talking about. As you said earlier, um, two Americas or more. I mean, there is the America that a person can live in when they are um, a person with power and position, certain class position in our society, and their version of America is things work well for me and there's justice in the law for me, whatnot. And then there's a whole other version of America for people who are not um in the empowered classes. Um, Do you want to speak to that? Right. I uh, contend that there are at least two Americas, one with less justice than the other. And uh, what happens is that when there isn't a problem, oftentimes both groups live in the same America. But when there is stress or crisis, then... Some are more equal than the other. Mm-hmm. And, for example, uh, during the forced incarceration, Gordon Hirabayashi, who was at the University of Washington, refused the curfew. And he turned himself in, and they didn't know what to do with him. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he was. Was he a student or a professor? He was a student at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, he was in Susilo Library, and his friend said, Gordon, Gordon, it's the curfew. you got to go back to, you know, the dorms. And uh, supposedly Gordon looked up at the, you know, the spires in Susilo, which looks like a cathedral, and he said, I'm not going. Mm-hmm. And so he decided to turn himself in. The ACLU helped him, and uh, he had several other violations that uh, – were taken all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is what you're supposed to do, mm-hmm. and he lost. Yeah. And Cory Matsu, very similar in California, same kind of thing. He lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, Min, uh, there's a Min Yasui in Portland did the same kind of thing, and he lost. Mm-hmm. The system did not work for them. And you said. In moments of crisis, in particular, things can shift. So we have high tension, stress, crisis, definitely not excuses, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. Um, but that's going on, and then rights are lost, right? So then we look forward to, for example, 9-11, crisis, shock, fear, and what do we get out of it? Homeland Security Doctrine, where un- no I would say 99.9% of people in this country have no idea what they lost with the Homeland mm-hmm. Security doctor. I mean, it's it's like, hmm, there's two Americas for everybody now. There's that America and there's the American <laughs> mythology that we've been taught. And, and hello, go read the fine print. Well, the, the one America is looking a little more like the other America. Yeah. Let's see here, a little bit back to the history, just to really make sure people understand what was going on. So uh, you explained to me that it was 150 miles from the coast inland was the region where all Issei, which 
is Japanese. Japanese. Right. And and Japanese-Americans. All of them were going to be uprooted and put into concentration camps. So you mentioned that there was a group. Well, there was a, there was a stage. I have the notes right here, and we were talking about it a bit. Many people are very familiar with what happened in World War II. First, um, Jewish people were talked really, and, and this also, of course, um, the Roma people, also known as gypsies, homosexuals, intellectuals. Many people were um, taken down by the Nazis. But um, when we look at the Jewish trajectory, First, we have lots of nasty smear campaigns, you know, imagery, make them look bad. Then they have to wear a yellow star. Then you end up with curfews. Then the ghettoizing of their communities where they are uprooted because they were so infiltrated all over. They really, they had had some of their own communities, but they were largely interspersed with the rest of the people of Germany. So you pull them out and shove them off somewhere where they're not seen so clearly, where the average German person doesn't really notice their friend anymore in a few weeks, couple months, whatever. Later, they their lives are moving on, and then the Nazis could go in and truck these people out and ship them off mm-hmm. to the concentration camps without the average German person saying, wait, that's my kid's best friend, or that's my neighbor, or she helped my mother when my mother was dying. And so it was easier to get rid of them. So that was the the list of sort of what was going on. With Japanese Americans, you said Hearst was involved in Yeah, the Hearst initially? newspapers mm-hmm. uh, sold a lot of paper uh, with their yellow journalism Mm-hmm. Where they spoke about how there were Japanese spies, or the farmers were were uh, poisoning the food, or that the Japanese fishermen were sending out uh, radio messages to the Japanese, right. and so that sold uh, uh, a lot of newspapers. The other thing is, uh, we don't have to wear a star; we are physically mm-hmm. identifiable. Uh, you can see us. Right. You could see us on paper. You, mm-hmm. you just look at the names and you know we are Japanese or Japanese-Americans. And the exclusion zone was 150 miles from uh, the coast. Right. So uh, some Japanese who had the resources were able to leave before the evacuation. Mm-hmm. And in Washington State, some went to Spokane. Mm-hmm. And ironically, Minidoka, Idaho is, you know, obviously – more than 150 miles inland, there were Japanese farmers in Idaho. So there were Japanese farmers outside the fence and Japanese inside the fence. So right. the, the Japanese-American experience is just full of ironies. But the pattern is that, you know, we were segregated, lived in a Japanese-American community pretty much in Seattle, in the and that world, was in advance. That yeah. wasn't like a purpose. That was, I mean, it was right, on purpose, right. but it had evolved like real right. estate. People wouldn't let you right. go buy in a white neighborhood or whatever. That was right. It, and redlining, redlining you would call it. is is what it was called uh, later on, but it was just a practice Yeah, that they just wouldn't sell to you. And you knew it. I mean, you just wouldn't even go try and buy over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in fact, even in the 50s, 60s, 50s, my mother – you know, we tried to buy a house, and no one would give us a loan. Hmm. The The only bank that would give us a house loan was in Bremerton. 
So she went to Bremerton and got a house loan for a Seattle house. Interesting. Was it a, was it a, why did the Bremerton bank offer loans? I don't know. They, I don't know. They just didn't know Hmm. that they didn't get the message that, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. That's what happened. Uh, Anyway, so the Japanese before the war were in a, in an isolated community. Mm-hmm. Um, and even after the war, jumping after the war, our dentist was Japanese, our milkman was Japanese, our lawyer was Japanese, our insurance man was Japanese. Uh, we were kind of self-contained. Mm-hmm. So before the war, we went, the community was even more self-contained. So that if someone went missing out of the Japanese community, the white residents would know very little about it and it would have no impact on them. Right. Because we were just over there. We were like on a reservation, if you will. Right. What happens on the reservation is just what happens there. And And then you mentioned that when the government did come in and really started ramping up for the um, ironically named evacuation, um, so December 8th, all of the community leaders within the Japanese community, they were all removed and actually put into an FBI camp? Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't say all, but many were taken right after Pearl Harbor. Okay. And, um, in fact, one of the uh, stories out of the uh, graphic novel, he worked for the um, immigration services as a his the father as a translator. Hmm. And the FBI came and picked him up on December 8th mm-hmm. and took him to the immigration center to the detain- detention area. Mm-hmm. So he was detained at the very building that he worked in. <laughs> but most right. people didn't know where these people were taken. Mm-hmm. And um, as I recall, uh, the community, you know, obviously was without leadership. And so they were vulnerable. And uh, And by leaders, we mean everything from a church leader. I'm assuming there were probably um, newspapers or or other, um, you know, that were offered up specifically to the Japanese community. So maybe the owners of the, I mean, who are are the leaders? Because the idea was that you pull away the community activists, the community leaders, the, the people who know how to join the people together, and then it... You know, the people are just sitting there shocked, mm-hmm. scared, and not really knowing what to do. It makes it much easier to take advantage of right. them. No, that's true. And in one case, I heard that uh, Reverend Emery Andrews, who's a, a white reverend of the Japanese Baptist Church, mm-hmm. he was the one who went searching for these people and found them at the immigration center. Really? Yeah. That no, because he's white. He, he was white. He he could speak the language. He had access, whereas uh, many of the Issei did not speak English. Uh, the second generation translated for them, and they certainly wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, confronting the, uh, you know, The people officials. who just kidnapped yeah. their neighbors, yeah, right. essentially. Yeah, and, right, right. And the FBI that... And I ask people this sometimes when I speak, you know, how many of you have contact with the FBI mm-hmm. or had or had your parents have contact? And it varies. But if you ask a Japanese-American person my age or, or a little younger, 
Every one of them will raise their hand. <sighs> the FBI came and visited us, mm-hmm. our family, other families. Uh, Was relative. this under Hoover? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. And so it's it's very strange that uh, we you know like degrees of separation, yeah. one or two for the FBI. Right. For almost all of us my age, I would say among the general population, not even that close. No, 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 no. Maybe I mean, several degrees of separation. Yeah, and it's a scary idea. Yeah. It's like, holy shit. You know, on one hand, either what did we do wrong? On the other hand is, okay, I know I didn't do anything wrong. What is my government going to do wrong via their FBI agent? Why are you here? And, you know, yeah. And And people lived in fear of the FBI, that they would come for you or come for the, your relatives. <sighs> and I've never heard of them coming at night, <sighs> which would be even scarier. But they mm-hmm. did come during the day, that is for sure. Right. They came for my grandfather. Uh, and my uh, mother spoke up on his behalf that my grandfather went to Japan for the funeral of his son. Right. And and the FBI knew it. And they came and said, you just came back from Japan. He went to uh, the funeral of his son. Right. And they knew. Yeah. They'd been tracking him. Now, you mentioned that um, after, I believe, timeline-wise, because, of course, you know, we are humans. They were humans then. The Romans were humans. The Greeks were humans. The Mongols are humans. In fact, pretty much... All of the examples, whether it's Somalia or the Sudan or wherever you go in the world where scary, bad things are happening, they're all human. There's no aliens that we know of yet on the planet. So, you know, we've got to keep a sense of um, humility and recognition that we are, in a way, the same. You know, even if your upbringing is a little different, well, oh gosh, there's um, the movie... In the Land of Blood and Honey, I believe is the title. And it deals with um, the war. Oh, goodness gracious. Brad Pitt is married to who? Angelina Jolie. There you go. Okay. Angelina Jolie produced this movie, and it deals with what was going on um, in Eastern. Oh. Was it the Japanese? Ukraine. Oh, okay. No, this is about the Ukraine. This was a while ago. and, and and, And it starts. There's this woman and this guy, and the, the woman's Muslim, and the guy is, I believe, they were the the Christians, and they were dating. They were at a, a, a like a bar, but not at like a sleazy bar. It was like a fun place to go. Music's playing, lights are flashing. It was, you know, this Eastern European mm-hmm. country Disco. was enjoying, yeah, yeah the, the benefits sort of, of of modern peaceful life. And then there's a car bomb goes off outside in the street. Glass flies right. in. And they then don't date because that's like the beginning of the war. And then it's, you know, so many months later or whatever that now she runs into him. It's his people who are taking all these women out of these apartment complexes and putting them into one of those big sex factories. You know, they had all these women who were just locked up and all the soldiers were brought in to have sex with whoever they wanted to. And he's in charge of this thing. And he sees her. And it's a, I don't think it's actually exactly a true story. But many of the actors in it, it's based upon equally true stories, you know? Mm-hmm. And he ends up trying to shield and sort of protect her. And, you know, it's this 
barbaric behavior going on amongst people who previously were sitting down to tea together or, you know, walking along together, shopping at the same grocery store together. And then it just devolves. And so I really think it's so important to pay attention to all the stages and steps and try to say to ourselves, we need to keep our eyes wide open, wide, wide open, and track what's happening in our lives so that 30 years from now, people aren't looking back at what happened next month and saying, wow, that was horrible and awful. How could that have happened? Mm -hmm. You know, we want to prevent. Uh, What is it? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So you said that the JACL. Japanese American Citizens League. Right. They played a role and they had an interesting perspective. Well, the, the, again, historians will will argue with me and the nuances of it, but mm-hmm. uh, the executive secretary of the JCL, Mike Masaoka, was known for his, uh, he advocated assimilation, Japanese to assimilate. Mm. And uh, he also wrote the Japanese American Creed, which spoke to loyalty. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was a force that, kind of took prominence when the Issei, first-generation leaders, were taken away Mm -hmm. to the FBI camps. So the Nisei, the second generation, stepped forward, and the Japanese-American Citizens League is named after citizens. You know, you had to be a citizen, Mm -hmm. and the Issei could not be citizens by law. And so it, it became, you know, obviously something pro-American. And I'd imagine there weren't very many elders, because at that point, wouldn't most of the elders have been Issei, and so was it mostly younger generation? Yeah. If the, you're dealing yeah. with only citizens. Right. If you're only citizens, they were probably younger. There were Issei's who were not in the FBI camps, of course, mm-hmm. but they were probably not leaders. I mean, my, my grandparents were not in the FBI camps. Right. They probably didn't want to be taking, yeah, they wouldn't necessarily want to be taking care of all of the, you know, aged and firm and, and stuff That's like that. True. yeah. Right. And so, um, in a way, sometimes um, we can make things better or we can make things worse for ourselves. Seems like there was a schism there between um, what the JACL was promoting and what others wish to see happen. Yeah, well, they they wanted to see assimilation be the goal. At least Mike Masoka spoke about that, and proving your loyalty. Mm-hmm. And that runs straight into the whole notion of how can you be loyal to a government that has incarcerated you? You know, what's well, the next well, no, step? No, I, can, I can be loyal to a government that incarcerates my brother because he murders someone. Yes. I can be loyal to a government that incarcerates... Um, my neighbor because of tax fraud. But can I be loyal to a government that incarcerates someone who has done nothing wrong? Based on race. Based on race, based on creed, based on philosophical beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and of course, then there's always the question of whether or not it was a money grab. Bellevue Square right. was once Japanese farmland. But there was an exhibit at the Bellevue Art Museum. They showed what was Japanese farmland. It was all 
pretty much most of downtown Bellevue mm. before the war. And mm-hmm. then after the war, you can see what happened to it. Well, and there's always, I mean, it doesn't even have to be people who are bad. It's not like, you know, conniving, you know, mentality. It just can be someone thinks, well, this is going to happen. I might as well take advantage of it. Or the famous, well, I don't really like my job. I don't like what I'm doing because it's wrong. But if I don't do it, someone else will do it. I'll take the $150,000 income mm-hmm. because someone's going to do it. There's lots of ways that we talk ourselves out of feeling responsible it, it for It was wrongdoing. nothing personal. It's just business. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say that Gordon Hirabayashi, who did take it to the Supreme Court, his case was reheard. Yeah. Later on, and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the date, mm-hmm. but uh, it was found that the government withheld information from the original Supreme Court case. Really? Yes. And so oh. they uh, vacated the position on Gordon's guilt, mm. but they didn't overturn case. Again, you'll have to check with some lawyers about hmm. the technicalities of all that. But the the thing for sure is that this uh, appeal pointed out that the government withheld important mm-hmm. information that would have supported Gordon. What I would want to say is that what what happened to the Japanese during the war had ongoing after effects. Yeah. It was not like, we put you into prison, you came home, and everything was all right. Mm-hmm. That my mother used to say, they took us there, and we didn't want to go. And when the war was over, they kicked us out, even though we had nowhere to go. Right. And so, oftentimes, returning was as bad or worse than leaving. And it had its after effects. And just want people to understand that not only the situation of the Japanese, but this is how it is with other groups, that they're just not incidents that happen and disappear, but they have after effects that carry on. And that when the government does something like that, to recognize that the the after effects will last for years. Yes. Um, Yeah, two... Two things I want to point out, one from your graphic novel and then the other. Um, there, There is a country, it's one of the S's, Sweden or Switzerland, I'm not sure which one, that is currently in the process of shutting down their prisons. Not all of them, but they are sort of experiencing this continual drop in the number of incarcerated members of their society, because mm-hmm. that's what they are. They're not prisoners. They're members of your society who had a hard time and they, they did something and they needed help. And... They're doing such a good job of helping to correct the problems those people were encountering that they're shutting prisons down. Wonderful. In our country, of course, we have an explosion in both the prison population, which means more and more members of our society are being incarcerated and removed from the opportunity to be productive members of society and to live their lives. And we have an explosion in the development and the building of of jail systems. So... When there's a, even a TV show does a good, good job of illustrating this. There's a book written 
um, Orange is the New Black, mm-hmm. I think is the title. And then um, one of the, you can find it online, one of the um, HBO, maybe, I'm not sure who, someone did a um, television-type series right. of Orange is the New Black. They do a really good job of illustrating how com- we do nothing to help these people reenter. I mean, it's like the there's an example of an older woman who simply got so much dementia they don't want to deal with her. They pardon her, basically give her early release and pop her out the door, and they don't even know who's going to come pick nothing. They basically were getting rid of her because she was a mm-hmm. problem. A young girl was sent out, and it's like, you're required. You have to find somewhere to live, this, that, and the other. But you don't get to, like, arrange it in advance. You know, she ends up in a horrible environment where people don't want her there. You know, such, and then you made the point earlier that handing someone $25 and a bus or train ticket, okay, go off and recreate your life, you, your wife, your three children, who you want mm-hmm. them in school wearing comfortable clothes and having friends, and you want a life for your children, Here's 25 bucks and a train ticket. So this seems to be a running theme. And when I looked at the back of this book, an American hero, Shiro Kashino, um, this is like chapter one of your six-chapter graphic novel coming out. And what got me the most was page 42, which is, I mean, the whole thing is shocking. But at the end, you see two pictures um, one is Shiro when he was young, uh, looks like probably going into the military. In the military. Yeah. Okay, and and then the other is him as an older gentleman. Um, and when I look at the young picture, all I see is a beautiful young man who I just would want, I mean, just looking forward into the world, his whole life ahead of him, and then reading about how he was treated after he came home from the war and all of the walls, all those racial barriers that he kept running into and all the ways in which our society just said, you know, no, we're not going to let you succeed. You know, just Mm -hmm. you're not okay enough. You know, just, just, you know, go away. We don't care. That's just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, he, he got six purple hearts. Try that one on for size. Two bronze stars, one silver medal, silver star. And then later on, after he was, he passed away, a congressional gold medal, you know. And he couldn't, he and, wouldn't be hired, people wouldn't hire him. Like, And then you see pictures of World War II and all these soldiers coming home and toilet paper and confetti being thrown out the windows and all this joy and happiness. And you know what? They're all white people in those cars with the pretty girls kissing them and everything. They came home to, you know... This, this massive real estate boom and all these homes that were given out to the returning soldiers. And there's movies about making sure that they got their job. Like all the Rosie the Riveters got sort of kicked out of their jobs and all the men we had to make sure that the young men got their jobs. These young men excelled at what we asked them to do, came home, and got none of the accolades. Yeah. They, they lived in the other America. Another America that we need to face, and I would like it if less and less Americans lived in the other America. Yes. Well, for those of you just joining us, you've been listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose on 101.9 FM, Voice of Vashon. My name is March Twisdale, and my guest author this month is Lawrence Matsuda, who was born in the Minidoka War Relocation Center 
a concentration camp for Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans. We have been talking today about his poetry, other works, and how to learn from human experiences. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.